Alrighty. Well, good morning, everybody. So everybody, hey, what happened to my mosh pit? I'm, I'm kind of taking this personal, I think. No, hey, that uh, those announcements are a cultural experience. I, I never knew what a mosh pit was, and I, I didn't know. Do I understand? Guys from Portland wear plaid. I, that was kind of new to me too. That's really interesting. Um, in any case, it's great to have you all here today. You know, I've got to get something off my chest first thing. And uh, last time I spoke, uh, for those of you that might remember, uh, I was talking about polar bears. Uh, anyway, the last time I spoke, uh, I used this picture. And I referred to it as a baby polar bear. And uh, of course, I just went you know, to Google and hit images and pulled up a bunch of polar bears. Uh, but this particular little baby polar bear, which I marveled at when I spoke last, thinking, isn't it amazing how tiny those little polar bears are when they're born. Actually, this is a, uh, someone informed me after my message, this is a stuffed animal. And you can buy them down at Walgreens, I guess. I don't know. They're pretty popular. Uh, so I thought I'd correct myself. That is not a baby polar bear. <laughs> and uh, But uh, little ones are about that big, though, not much bigger. In any case, uh, I thought I should correct that. And uh, today, you know, we're going to be starting on a neat series over the next couple months, really, going into Mother's Day and on into Father's Day. Uh, we thought, wouldn't it be neat to just kind of take a, a bit of a change up and uh, look at biographies, biblical biographies, people in the Bible and what we can learn from their lives. Um, you know, I love biographies, even ones outside of the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite biographies is really kind of a spinoff of what we did last Sunday at Easter with Billy Graham's organization showing that video. Really enjoyed that video. But that's really my favorite biography, uh, is Billy Graham's biography, Just As I Am. And I've got a whole bunch of these uh, biographies at home. But um, this particular biography I thought was interesting. I just this morning kind of looked at some of the things I highlighted from it here on page 276. When I arrived at number 10 Downing Street, I was reminded by Mr. Colville that the Prime Minister can only give me 20 minutes. Mr. Churchill rose from his chair and shook my hand. I had not realized what a short man he was. I towered over him. It would be just the two of us. Well, first he said, in the marvelous voice I heard so many times on the radio and in the newsreels, I want to congratulate you for the huge crowds you've been drawing here in Great Britain. Oh, well, it's God's doing, believe me, uh, uh, Billy Graham said. Well, that may be, he said, but I dare say that if I brought Marilyn Monroe over here and she and I together went to Wembley, we couldn't fill it. And I laughed, trying to imagine the spectacle. He said, Reverend Graham, what is filling up these stadiums? And I said, it's the gospel of Christ. And I told him without hesitation, people are hungry to hear the word straight from the Bible. Almost all the clergy of this country used to preach it faithfully, but I believe they've gotten away from it. Yes, he said, sign, things have changed tremendously. 
Well, things do look dark, I agreed, and I hesitated not wanting to repeat a gaffe that I committed with President Truman just a few years before by being too direct about religion in our conversation. But we talked at length about the world situation, and then if as on cue, the Prime Minister looked me in the eye and said, I am a man without hope. Somberly, do you have any real hope? I went on to ask him, are you without hope for the, your soul's salvation? And he said, frankly, I think about that a great deal. And I had a New Testament with me, and knowing that we had but a few minutes left, I immediately explained the way of salvation. I watched carefully for signs of irritation or offense, but he seemed receptive, even enthusiastic. And I also talked about God's plan for the future, including the return of Christ. His eyes seemed to lighten up at that prospect. And at precisely 12.30, Mr. Caldwell knocked. Sir Winston, the Duke of Windsor, is here for your luncheon. Well, let him wait, said Churchill, waving Caldwell off. Continue, he said to me. I went on for about another 15 minutes and asked if we could pray, and he said he would appreciate that. And then as I left, he said, our conversations are private, aren't they? Yes, sir, I said, having decided after the Truman fiasco that I would never again quote a leader during his or her lifetime. Just kind of an amazing little uh, insight into a conversation he had with the world leader of his day. And as I went through this, I noticed the conversation he had with Dwight D. Eisenhower. It's almost identical. Nehru, Chiang Kai-shek, all the presidents, Shah uh, of Iran, Dodge Hammarskjöld, uh, of course, Churchill, various wealthy men in the United States, Ross Perot, H.L. Uh, Hunt, uh, different ones that wanted to contribute money to him, but he would refuse to for different reasons. H.L. Hunt would only give Graham money if he promised to have a booth at the 1939 World's Fair against communism, which he said, no, it's just got to be about the gospel. Uh, people in India thought Graham was God, just like Paul, he had to convince people he wasn't. There's one story of, a, of an African leader who walked 1,600 miles and 30 Africans from 33 nations joined him from Zambia to Malawi and from there the journey was only half done because from there they had to fly to Amsterdam. Together the whole group was one-fourth of one of, uh, of Billy Graham's Amsterdam crusade. One-fourth of the stadium was these people from Africa. It's just an amazing individual. Uh, Paul Harvey, others, uh, the people that this man talked to. And I suppose if you could learn anything from his life was that uh, the gospel is everything. The gospel is central. Well, again, in the Bible, we can look at individuals in the Bible and we can learn from them too. There are certain central attributes about all their lives that we can learn from. And uh, being fortunate enough to kick this series off, I have the pick of the litter. I could pick any biblical character I wanted to. And uh, started with Samson. That kind of sounded interesting. I like to learn from people's mistakes sometimes. But then again, I thought, you know, let's just go with the safe bet. Let's just go with Joseph because he's one guy that didn't make any mistakes at all. He's one guy where in the Bible there's just nothing negative said about him. And in fact, most people would see him as a type of Christ. Some people, authors, will even point out 120 similarities between Joseph and Jesus. He certainly saved his world. 
He saved the Israeli nation. He was an incredible individual that we can really learn a lot from. But you know, you can even reduce Joseph's life to one central message, just as we could Billy Graham's. In one word, you could reduce what we can most learn from Joseph. And you know what? You might be surprised what that word is. But what do you say we pray and we'll get started as we take a look at this incredible individual, Joseph. Lord, we want to thank you for this day, this opportunity to be together, to meet together. Uh, Lord, uh, when I think back over one week's of time, uh, there's just so many events and circumstances and list of to-dos and so many responsibilities. Uh, sometimes the, the few moments we have on a Sunday morning uh, seems so little. Uh, such a little time to be refreshed, encouraged, challenged in our faith. And yet, Lord, we pray that in spite of the uh, the balance issue here that you would break through our hearts and encourage and teach us, challenge us, and lead us into a deeper relationship with you and with one another. So Lord, we commit these moments to you now and ask that you continue to lead and guide us here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I think I'd like to begin the story of Joseph with the story of his great-grandfather. His great-grandfather was Abraham. So Abraham's son was Isaac. That would be Joseph's grandfather. Isaac's son was Jacob. And then Jacob, of course, was, um, was Joseph's father. And so Joseph and his 11 other brothers would all be great-grandchildren to Abraham. Now, if you look at the first 11 chapters of the Bible, they're all about the world, you know, in general. You know, just nothing specific to any nation particularly. But when you hit Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God's attention zeroes in on one person. And that would be Joseph's great-grandfather, Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. And God chose one person out of the whole earth, and it's recorded here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, to give a promise to. You know, we have the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, filled with promises. Abraham didn't have a Bible, Old or New Testament. He just had one little verse, this little promise that God had given him. Was it in a dream? I don't know. A vision? We're not sure. But it was an impression that he certainly was convinced and knew to be the voice of God. And God said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make a great nation out of you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now when you're one person, the thought of being made into a great nation is an incredible promise. And Abraham believed this promise, and you can bet that his son Isaac knew that this promise was given to his father. And Jacob knew of this promise. And Joseph knew of this promise directly from his grandfather and his father. And so it's an important promise. But what do you need to even have a nation? Well, you've got to have a lot of people. So when you give this promise to one person, even the thought of becoming a lot of people is an incredible thought. But you also need maybe a common language, a common religion. You certainly need a common ground, a territory, a piece of property. Hey, you know, most people do pretty good to buy a house in their lifetime. What about having enough land given to you that you could, you know, again, host an entire nation of people? That's what this promise suggests that Abraham could believe God for. 
But think how difficult that would be. And so God was going to give him a great, great nation, make him into a great nation. And the purpose would be so that he could bless all the nations of the earth, not just experience the blessings of God. And of course we know that that was accomplished ultimately through a descendant of his we know to be Jesus. And the whole Old Testament then is the story of that nation that God promised Abraham, Israel. And how it would bring into an existence the Messiah, the Christ. And then the whole New Testament is the story of that person, that nation produced, Jesus. And how Jesus, through the nation of Israel, really became the salvation of the world, the salvation of Israel, just as Joseph became that in his day. Jesus is God's answer for man's sin. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the message that Billy Graham spread throughout the world. Even the Indians thought he was God as he presented his message. He had to remind them that no, he's not. He's just the messenger. And people all over the world, great leaders all over the world, heard this message from Billy Graham. It's the message of salvation that God has given us. It's not a message we've created. It's not a message as some are that people create here and there, a religion here, a religion there. This is God's revelation to us, saying to us, to be saved, you must believe in my son Jesus. Because he's the one that came into the world to die for your sins. He's the one that paid for your sins. Embracing Him as your Savior, you'll be saved. And so that's the great blessing that is spread to all families of the earth, just as God promised Abraham it would. And so God went about, right off the bat, He went about to try to create this nation for Abraham so that all of us would be blessed by Jesus one day. And this is kind of a picture of that nation. Abraham was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees at the base of the Euphrates River. And God said, leave that. Leave your family and go up that river, the Euphrates River. There's part of it right there. And Abraham continued down the coastline of Israel to what we today know as Israel. And that was going to become his nation. Now when he walked and stepped foot on Israel, you know, there's no one there. There's no, you know, title for that property. He just was walking on this ground. And God said, you know, as far as you see, this will be your land. I will give this land to you. And what an amazing place to be given property. I mean, truly it sinks with the promise God had given Abraham that he'd be a blessing to all the nations because this property was at the crossroads of three continents. Truly an influential territory that would influence the world easily. To the South Africa, to the north and west was Europe, and to the east was Asia. And there was one major highway that came right down the middle of this along the coast called the International Highway that every con conqueror that ever lived would have marched their troops down that highway. And it was a major thoroughfare for the world. And so a perfect ideal location for the promise that God had given Abraham that, that again he would become a great nation that would influence the entire world. And so we can continue with Abraham's journey. And Abraham went down into Israel. He kind of settled in that Hebron area. And there you can see it on the map. Also on this map you'll see the lined uh, road. That's that international highway. And you can see it goes through this little town Dothan up there at the top of the map. And then it goes down on into Egypt. That was the Ishmaelite caravan route. Uh, they would come across from the east and hook up with that international 
highway and go straight down into Egypt. And uh, we'll begin our reading. I'm going to read you some because it's a narrative over about 25 chapters. I know that's scary. Uh, we won't be reading that much, but some excerpts here and there. Genesis 37 verse 2 is now where we begin with the story of Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob is here and Hebron with his sons, now Joseph. This is the account of Jacob. Um, now we move on in verse 2 of chapter 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. That must have been a pretty miserable home life for Joseph, having 11 brothers and none of them could speak a kind word to you. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain and out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. Oh, they hated that dream. And they hated Joseph all the more. And he had another dream, kind of similar, except it included the sun and the moon. And he told that to his father and his mother. And they understood that the dad was the sun and the mother was the moon. And, and again, they were all bowing down to Joseph. And even the dad and mom were a little upset by that. And then we go on with the story in chapter 37, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. You know, that's not too far, but it's a good, you know, 30 miles. That's quite a ways to take a flock of sheep to, to graze. Up there in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he said. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and said, What are you looking for? And Joseph replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flock? And they, uh, he said, um, they moved from here and I heard them say they're going to Dotham, the city that's right on that Ishmaelite caravan route from the east that hooks up then with the major highway, that international highway that would go straight to Egypt. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before they, he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Reuben was the oldest brother. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue Joseph from them and then to take him back to his fathers later on. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented one, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, myrrh, and they were on their way to take those products down to Egypt. And so it was right there at Dothan, right at the crossroads of this caravan route, that they came in touch with these Ishmaelites and they sold Joseph to them as a slave. And so Joseph went down that international highway. Here's actually the Dothan Pass. And that pass is defined not by time, but by the hills that surround it. That very pass would have been the pass that Joseph would have walked down en route to Egypt. And then he would have made way to this international highway. And you can see it again is at the base of the valley of the Mount Carmel Mountains around it. And he would have walked down that very highway. It may not have been the very highway, I guess. I don't think they had asphalt in his day. But, uh, but at least, uh, you know what I'm talking about. A little a pathway that would take him on down to Egypt. And so that was uh, the route that Joseph would take. And he then now was sold as a slave. And it says that in verse 36, but I will talk about these phases of, of Joseph's life. Really, the first phase just concluded. He's 17 years old, and uh, he was the odd man out in his family all those years where all his brothers couldn't say a kind word to him. And now in verse 36 of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And now Joseph was going to become a prisoner. And you know, I got to say, later in his life, and we're jumping forward to chapter 50, when Joseph reflects back on this day when his brothers tried, were going to kill him and ultimately sold him as a slave, this is the passage of scripture that refers to that moment. From Genesis 50, verse 19, Joseph said to his brothers, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And so Joseph, he never became bitter at any of these events that hit his life. When his brothers tried to kill him or tried to sell him or did sell him as a slave, he didn't become bitter. He became better. And he trusted, really, I believe he trusted that promise he gave, uh, God gave his grandfather, Abraham. That one day, Abraham and his descendants would become as numerous as the stars, that they would become a great nation. Joseph was part of that promise himself. But he also believed that, that God would work things together for good. And God was sovereign God that could accomplish that promise in his great-grandfather's life. And he could accomplish even the dreams he dreamed of for himself as a young man. God could accomplish those dreams for him. I think he had that sense of faith. And so then in verse 36 we see that he was sold to Potiphar and now he became a slave. And we'll continue reading here in chapter 39, verse 6. So he left, he was left in Joseph's care, Potiphar left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built, he was handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of him. 
and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he said, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. And he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had fled... She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard my scream, he left his coat beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until Master Potiphar returned. And then she told him the story. And that Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed, he left his cloak and ran out of the house. While the master heard the story, he became his anger burned. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners are confined. Now again, this promise would come to Joseph's mind. Joseph said, you meant this for evil. Potiphar's wife meant it for evil. Potiphar maybe meant it for evil. But God is going to mean this for good. That was kind of a fundamental verse or truth that came into Joseph's mind undoubtedly throughout his entire life. Now he was a slave. And that's entering into the next phase of his life. But with this incident, he became a prisoner. The third phase of his life. You know, it really isn't the most exciting life, is it? You know, odd man out. Then he kind of got a promotion to slave. And then he got another promotion. Now he's a slave that's in prison. And uh, it's a tough life for Joseph. Then in chapter 40 we read, Sometime later the cupbearer and a baker were thrown in prison. And Joseph was assigned to them to take care of them by the guard who entrusted things like that to Joseph. And after they had been in custody for some time, those two men had a dream. And it troubled them. And Joseph noticed it troubled them. And he asked them this next morning, he said, What's troubling you? And, the, and uh, when they saw that they were so dejected. And they explained, We both had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said that he could interpret them, or interpretation is of God. Let him know maybe God would give him grace to understand it. And he interpreted them. And for one, it meant three days later he would be executed. And for the other, it meant three days later he'd be released. Jumping to verse 20 of chapter 40. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. And he gave a feast for all of his officials. And he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in his presence. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he again put the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph as Joseph asked him to. He forgot Joseph in prison. Now he was a slave that was in prison. He was a forgotten slave that was in prison. And that was really as far as he knew what the rest of his life might look like. And so we see that life though was soon to change. In chapter 42 we read that 
or in chapter 41, we read that Pharaoh had a dream, and it troubled him. And the cupbearer then remembered Joseph. And Joseph came and interpreted this great and awesome, fearful dream of Pharaoh's, which basically said, for seven years there will be plenty on earth, followed by seven years of utter famine and destitution. And Joseph interpreted this dream for the Pharaoh. And then in verse 33 of chapter 41, and now let Pharaoh, and this is Joseph's uh, response to the dream, let Pharaoh look for discerning and wise man to put in charge of the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven-year abundance. And they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to his officials. And so Pharaoh said, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne itself will I be greater than you. And overnight, Joseph, overnight, he became the ruler of Egypt. And really as those next 14 years unfolded, by the end of those 14 years, he was the ruler of the world. And it really took a Hebrew to be in that position because if an Egyptian was, they would never give food to a Hebrew. The Hebrew, though, would give food to anybody, any nation that came to Egypt for help. And in that way, Joseph became really, really the savior of the world, not just the savior of Egypt. And ultimately, he would also then be the savior of his own people, the Israelites. And so, it's an amazing thing. But as he reflected on his life, I'm sure that he was more and more convinced of this truth. Don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. Others mean for evil against me, but God has always meant these bad things that happened to me to be for my good. And so he ultimately then became this provider of Israel. And as he looked back on his life, that famine was one of the best things that ever happened to him. When he looked back on his life, being forgotten in prison was one of the best things that ever happened to him. Looking back on his life, being imprisoned was one of the best things that ever happened to him. And looking back in his life, being sold into slavery was one of the best things that ever happened to Joseph. Those are the best things that happened to Joseph to bring him to the point to be the provider of Israel, the preserver of Israel, the preserver of life, the preserver of the world, the preserver of, of course, Egypt. And he believed, I'll tell you, he believed in that promise probably more than ever, that promise that was given to his great-grandfather, the dreams that he had when he was a kid, this promise, this truth that he clung to as well through the course of his life that prevented him from falling into bitterness, but kept him a better man, a man who trusted in a sovereign God to conduct the affairs of his life. Joseph's strengths, well, for one thing, he had a, a good view of the past, Yes, all these people that did these bad things, but we already saw how he viewed those things. From the hand of a sovereign God, he rejected bitterness. He, he was a guy that was uh, just kind of insulated from all these terrible things in life. 
You know, Julie and I, many years ago, went to this little town called Kilmacow. It's a little town two miles outside of Waterford. It's where my great-grandfather came from. And we went into the Catholic church there, and it's about a 150-year-old church. And the Father Daly was a priest, and he was so, so proud of their mural on, behind the altar on that whole wall of the church. And uh, this guy from Italy came over and painted this uh, wall. And basically it's kind of a unique method of painting. Uh, he painted this big resurrection scene of Jesus Christ and all these angels surrounding him. But he did it on wet, uh, uh, wet uh, plaster. Thank you out there. And so uh, he plastered the wall and he painted it as he went. So when he put the blue paint on the wet plaster, the paint, the blue paint absorbed into the plaster. Or the red paint would absorb into the plaster. The whole painting, the paint was designed to absorb into the plaster, making the painting scratch proof. You could go up there and scratch the painting, but it wouldn't uh, create, a, you know, the, the white plaster wouldn't be seen from beneath because the white plaster was the same color as the paint on top. And that's what I think of when I think of Joseph. His life became scratch proof. You could scratch him and try to hurt him, but you know that paint went deep into his life. And you couldn't really make him bitter. He only became better. And wherever he went, God was with him. And God blessed him. And there is a link between the presence of God and allowing that presence through forgiveness even and uh, the blessings of God. And so it's just an amazing story. He had a great view of the past. He had a really good view of the present. You know, he wholeheartedly served wherever he was at. You know, he wholeheartedly served his dad. He actually was serving his brothers, all of them older than him. He wholeheartedly served Potiphar, he wholeheartedly served the guy, the chief jailer that put him in charge of things inside the prison. He was a man that understood authority. He didn't chafe at it. He didn't resent it. He didn't buck at being told what to do or having expectations placed upon him or limitations where he wasn't his own man and couldn't just make his own choices. He was an individual under authority. And that was his view of the present. And of course, God was with him. I can't imagine, though, that he hasn't had, and maybe you guys can even help me out on this. Remember that advertisement on TV where someone's talking and into this really, maybe it's with his girlfriend, and then, and then all of a sudden the phone cuts out? Have you ever seen that advertisement? Work with me on this. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry I can't remember the words. But anyway, I've had that situation where I'm talking, and I'm, be, I'm, I'm waxing eloquent. And maybe I'm talking to Julie or somebody, and then all of a sudden I realize she's not even on the phone. And uh, i just trying to figure out where did, uh, where did my conversation, what part of my conversation did she end up with hearing? And uh, I think it's like that with God. Sometimes we think we're talking to Him, and He's talking back to us. And uh, all of a sudden you realize He's not on the other end of the line. And I think Joseph probably felt like that in prison at times. I think he felt like that as a slave at times. I think he felt like that in his father's house at times, even the way his brothers were treating him, like he was on the phone thinking God was listening, but maybe God just wasn't. But it's in those times that we see the example of Joseph's life as one who, undoubtedly having those times, never let the emotion of that dictate his faith. Still, he saw through those emotions and recognized God was with him.
In faith, he believed it. In faith, he believed there was a sovereign God. Even if at times he seemed distant. As he can, I know, for all of us. But you know, Joseph wasn't remembered for any of these things of greatness that we pointed out. He wasn't remembered for being such a great dreamer or interpreter of dreams. He wasn't remembered for being a great administrator, although he's an incredible administrator. He wasn't remembered for saving Israel, for saving the world. He wasn't remembered even for being such a forgiver to all these people that did bad things to him. You know what he was remembered for? was his proper view of the future. And his proper view of the future is reflected in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, listing all the greatest of the people of faith. In Hebrews 11, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. That's what the hall of faith remembers Joseph for. Instructing Israel what to do with his bones when they leave Egypt. I just think that's really fascinating. And you know, when the Jews had come, Joseph and his family had come to Egypt during Joseph's reign, they were given Goshen, which is like the Nile River Delta. I mean, it is the best land in Egypt. Why would they even, I'm sure many of them even thought, why would we ever even ever want to leave this place? To go back to Canaan. But remember, Joseph knew his great-grandfather's promise. How God was going to have him leave his family and go to another land that he would show him, which he knew to be the land he grew up in, in Haran and Canaan. He knew that land was promised to his great-grandfather. And his great-grandfather moved there. And his grandfather was born there. And his father was born there. And he was expecting the day would come when he would return to that geographical area because that was the nation that was fulfillment to the promise of his great-grandfather. And in faith, he told his people, as he was about to die in Genesis 50, he said, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised and oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. You know, really, in a word, what Joseph is most remembered for is his faith. His faith. He was a man of faith. That's the one word I think of when I think of Joseph. Isn't all these great accomplishments. It's just faith. Even in the day-to-day things of life, and even certainly the big things of life as well. Joseph was a man of, of great faith. And I might ask, you know, what about us? You know, how can we face the many disappointments, the many regrets, the many challenges, some that have been brought about by our own choices, but some have been foisted upon us by other people who've meant evil upon us. You know, how can we deal with those disappointments and those challenges. And again, the one verse that I go through, and we're going to have to jump ahead to this one, is in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Joseph had a very particular, specific promise that God had given his great-grandfather. 
He even had particular specific promises that God had given him through the dreams he had as a young kid that his brothers so resented. We have a very particular specific promise in Romans 8.28. You know, you join me in trying to believe this promise to be true as Joseph believed his promises to be true. It'll be a challenge. Or will we fall into bitterness, uh, unforgiveness, or as Joseph, can we apply faith to our lives? You know, I'm not sure that the most difficult things that happen to us are the best things that happen to us. You know, for Joseph it was. He ended up the ruler of the world. But, you know, there's some, some Christians that, you know, the worst things happen to them. You know, they get their head cut off too, you know. And that's, and, you know, but, but I think no matter how dark our situation is, and even whether it works out to be the best thing that ever happened to us or not, I believe in this verse. That God can take that situation and work it together for good for us. I believe that's true, regardless of whatever situation we're in. And so I guess my challenge to us today would be to follow the example of Joseph, an example of faith, and follow his faith in the promises that God has given us, and to exercise our faith in believing those promises uh, even in the midst of our darkest moments of life. What do you say we close in prayer and thank God for the time He's given us and uh, you know, we'll look forward to seeing you guys next time. Lord, thank you for this time, this day, the opportunity to be together. Thank you that we can be refreshed by some of the stories of Joseph's life. Some of the passages I didn't read today, but uh, just so amazing as he revealed himself to his brothers who stood in amazement that this Joseph that they sold in slavery, intending to kill, intending to destroy, was now the ruler of the world, was now their ruler, just as his dreams predicted. What an amazing sight to think of Joseph seeing his brother Benjamin and, and all of his brother recognizing them, though they did not recognize him. What an incredible sight that must have been for him. And as he broke down and wept, had to run from their presence so he could weep uh, without them knowing of his tears. And how he tested those brothers to see if they had repented. And ultimately, Lord, how then his dreams came true. Father, what an incredible story. But Lord, you have an incredible story for each of our lives. And I just pray that each of us would be as committed to faith as Joseph was in his. And we commit these things to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, thanks, guys, and have a great day. Good to see you. You know, I just wasn't sure we should do that video.